Chapter Five of Nothing But the Truth by Frederick Isham. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Five, Trivialities. Luncheon came and went, but nothing actually tragic happened at it. Bob didn't make more than a dozen remarks that failed to add to his popularity. He tried to be agreeable, because that was his nature. That even tenor of his way condition made it incumbent on him, yes, made it his sacred duty, to be bright and amiable. So it was, hence loathed melancholy, and a brave endeavour to be as jocund as the poet's lines. Only those little unfortunate moments, airy preludes to larger misfortunes, had to occur, and just when he would flatter himself he was not doing so badly. For example, when Mrs. Augustus Ossenreich, Vanderpool, said, "'Don't you adore dogs, Mr. Bennett?' "'No, I like them.' It became necessary to qualify that. "'That is, not the little kind.' The lady stiffened. Her beribboned and perfumed five-thousand-dollar toy dogs were the idolized darlings of her heart. The children might be relegated to the nursery, but the canines had the run of the boudoir. They rode with her when she went out in state, while the French bon took the children for an airing. "'And why are the little kind excluded from the realm of your approbation?' observed Mrs. Vanderpool, coldly. It was quite a contract to answer that. Bob wanted to be truthful, not to say too much or too little, only just as much as he was in honour bound to say. "'I think people make too much fuss over them,' he answered at last. That reply seemed quite adequate, and he trusted the lady would change the subject. But people had a way of not doing what he wanted them to, lately. "'What do you call too much fuss?' pursued the lady, persistently. Bob explained as best he could. It was rather a thankless task, and he floundered a good deal as he went about it. He wasn't going to be a bit more disagreeable than he could help, only he couldn't help being as disagreeable as he had to be. The fact that Miss Gwendolen Gerald's starry eyes were on him with cold curiosity did not improve the lucidity of his explanation. In the midst of it, she to whom he was talking seemed somehow to detach herself from him, gradually, not pointedly, for he hardly knew just when or how she got away. She seemed just to float off, and to attach herself somewhere else, to the bishop or to a certain judge Mrs. Ralston always asked to her house-parties that they might have a judicial as well as an ecclesiastical touch. And Bob's explanation died on the thin air. He let it die. He didn't have to speak truth to vacancy. Then he tangoed, but not with Miss Gwendolen Gerald. He positively dared not approach that young lady. He didn't tango because he wanted to, but because someone set a big music-box going, and he knew he was expected to tango. He did it beautifully, and the young lady was charmed. She was a little dark thing, of the clinging variety, and Dickie had gone with her some. Her father owned properties that would go well with Dickie's. There had been some talk of consolidation, but it had never come off. Papa was inclined to be standoffish. Then Dickie began to get attentive to the little dark thing, though nothing had yet come of that either. Bob didn't own any properties, but the little dark thing didn't mind that. At tangoing he was a dream. Properties can't tango. "'You do it so well,' said the little dark thing breathlessly. "'Do I?' murmured Bob, thinking of a stately young goddess now tangoing with another fellow. "'Don't you adore it?' went on the little dark thing, nestling as close as was conventional and proper. 
I might, observed Bob. That was almost as bad as the dog question. He trusted the matter would end there. She giggled happily. Maybe you disapprove of modern dancing, Mr. Bennett? That depends, said Bob gloomily. He meant it depended upon who was doing the modern with the object of your fondest affections. If you yourself were engaged in the arduous pastime with said object, you would naturally harbour no particular objections against said modern tendencies. But if you weren't... Bob tangoed more swiftly. His thoughts were so bitter he wanted to run away from them. The irony of gliding rhythmically and poetically in seeming joyous abandon of movement when his heart weighed a ton. If that heaviness of heart were communicated to his legs, they would in reality be as heavy as those of a deep-sea diver, weighted down for a ten-fathom plunge. And in thus trying to run away from his thoughts, Bob whirled the little dark thing quite madly. He couldn't dance ungracefully if he tried, and the little dark thing had a soul for rhythm. It was as if he were trying to run away with her. He fairly took away her breath. She was a panting little dark thing on his broad breast now, but she didn't ask him to stop. The music-box ceased to be musical, and that brought them to a stop. The eyes of the little dark thing—her name was Dolly—sparkled, and she gazed up at Bob with the respect one of her tender and impressionable years has for a masculine whirlwind. "'You quite sweep one off one's feet, Mr. Bennett,' she managed to ejaculate. At that moment Miss Gwendolen passed, the divine bud glowing on either proud cheek. She caught the remark and looked at the maker of it. She noted the sparkle in the eyes. The little dark thing was a wonder with the men. She seemed to possess the knack, only second to Miss Gwendolen, in that line, of converting them into trailers. Miss Gwendolen, though, never tried to attain this result. Men became her trailers without any effort on her part, while the little dark thing had to exert herself. But it was agreeable work. She made Bob a trailer now, temporarily. Miss Gwendolen turned her head slightly, with a gleam of surprise to watch him trail. She had noticed that Bob had danced with irresistible and almost pagan abandon. That argued enjoyment. The little dark thing would come in, ultimately for hundreds of belching chimneys and glowing furnaces and noisy factories, quite a snug if cacophonous legacy. And Miss Gwendolen had only that day heard rumours that Bob's governor had fallen down and hurt himself on the street. She, Miss Gwendolen, had not attached much importance to those rumours. People were always having little mishaps in the street, and then bobbing up, richer than ever. But now that rumour recurred to her more vividly, in the light of Bob's trailing performance, and the mad abandon of his tangoing. Of course, all men are gamblers, or fortune-hunters, or something equally reprehensible at heart. Tendency of a cynical, selfish, and money-grabbing age. Miss Gwendolen was no moralist, but she had lived in a wise set, where people keep their eyes open and weigh things for just what they are. Naturally, a young man whose governor had gone on the rocks, though only temporarily, perhaps, might think that belching chimneys, though somewhat splotchy on the horizon, and unpicturesque to the eye, might be acceptable, in a first aid to the injured sense. But Bob, as a plain, ordinary fortune-hunter? Somehow the role did not fit him. Besides, a fortune-hunter would not brusquely and unceremoniously have refused her invitation to ride in the trap. And at the recollection of that affront, Miss Gwendolen's violet eyes again gleamed, until for sparkles they outmatched those of the little dark thing. 
However, she held herself too high to be really resentful. It was impossible she should resent anything so incomprehensible, she told herself. That would lend dignity to the offence. Therefore, she could only be mildly amused by it. This was, no doubt, a properly lofty attitude. But was it a genuine one? Was she not actually at heart deeply resentful and dreadfully offended? Pride being one of her marked characteristics, she demanded a great deal and would not accept a little. The sparkles died from the hard violet eyes. A more tentative expression replaced that other look as her glance now passed meditatively over the dark little thing. The latter had certainly a piquant, bizarre attraction. She looked as if she could be very intense, though she was of that clinging vine variety of young woman. She wore one of those tango gowns, which was odd, outré, and a bit daring. It went with her personality. At the same time, her innocent expression seemed a mute, almost pathetic little appeal, to you not to think it too daring. As Miss Gerald studied the young lady, albeit without seeming to do so, and holding her own in a sprightly tango kind of talk, another thought flashed into her mind. Bob might be genuinely and sentimentally smitten. Why not? Men frequently fall in love with the little dark thing, and afterward some of them said she had a good deal of temperament. Bob might be on a temperament-investigating quest. At any rate, it was all one to Miss Gerald. Life was a comedy, n'est-ce pas? What was it Balzac called it? La comédie humaine. Meanwhile, other eyes than Miss Gerald's were bent upon luckless Bob. Mrs. Dan and Mrs. Clarence looked as if they would like to have a word with him. Mrs. Dan even manoeuvred in his direction at the conclusion of the dance while Bob watched her with ill-concealed apprehension. He detected, also, an uncanny interest in Mrs. Clarence's eyes as that masterful lady eyed him and Mrs. Dan from a distance. Mrs. Dan almost got him when, the saints be praised, Mrs. Ralston, herself, tripped blithely up and annexed him. For the moment he was safe, but only for the moment. A reckless desire to end it all surged through Bob's inmost being. If only his hostess would say something demanding an answer that would incur such disapprobation on her part, he would feel impelled, in the natural order of events, to hasten his departure. Maybe then, and he thrilled at the thought, she might even intimate in her chilliest manner that his immediate departure would be the logical sequence of some truthful spasm she herself had forced from him. He couldn't talk French to Mrs. Ralston now. He was in honour bound not to. He would have to speak right up in the King's English, or Uncle Sam's American. Of course, such a consummation, Bob's being practically forced to take his departure, was extremely unpleasant and awful to contemplate. Yet worse things could happen than that, a whole string of them, one right after another. However, he had no such luck as to be ordered forthwith off the premises. He didn't offend Mrs. Ralston at all. That lady was very nice to him, or otherwise from Bob's present viewpoint, and did most of the talking herself. Perhaps she considered that compliment Bob had bestowed upon her at the Waldorf sufficient to excuse him for a while from further undue efforts at flattery. At any rate, she didn't seem to take it amiss that Bob didn't say a lot more of equally nice things in that Chesterfieldian manner, and with such a perfect French accent. But he got in bad that afternoon with divers and sundry other guests of Mrs. Ralston. 
Mrs. Augustus O. Vanderpool, and Miss Gerald were the only ones who threw cold glances his way, for the faux pas he made, that he had to make, were something dreadful. For example, when someone asked him what he thought of Miss Schirmerhorn's voice, he had to say huskily what was in his mind. It is rather too strident, isn't it? No sugar-coating the truth. If he had said anything else, he would have been compromising with veracity. He would not have spoken the thought born in his brain at the question. Of course, someone repeated what he said to Miss Schirmerhorn, who came from one of the oldest families, was tall and angular, and cherished fond illusions, or delusions, that she was an amateur nightingale. The someone who repeated, had to repeat, because Miss Schirmerhorn was her dearest friend and confidant. Then Miss Schirmerhorn came right up to Bob, and asked him if he had said it, and he was obliged to answer that he had. What she said or thought need not be repeated. She left poor Bob feeling about as big as a caterpillar. "'How very tactful of Mr. Bennett,' was all Miss Gerald said, when Miss Dolly related to her the little incident. "'That's just what I adore in him,' gushed the temperamental little thing. "'He doesn't seem to be afraid of saying anything to anybody. He's so delightfully frank.' Frank, certainly, answered Miss Gerald, icily. Anyhow, he's a regular tango king, murmured Miss Dolly dreamily. I'm so glad you approve of him, dear, said Miss Gerald, with an enigmatic smile. Perhaps she implied the temperamental little thing found herself in a class all by herself in this regard. The latter flew over to Bob. If he was so frank and ingenuous about Miss Shermerhorn, perhaps he would be equally so with other persons. Miss Dolly asked him if he didn't think the bishop's sermons just too dear. Bob did not. Why not? she persisted. Bob had just been reading The Outside of the Pot. Why not? repeated Miss Dolly. Antediluvian, groaned Bob, then turned a fiery red. The bishop, standing on the other side of the doorway, had overheard. Maybe Miss Dolly had known he stood there, for she now giggled and fled. Bob wanted to sink through the floor, but he couldn't. "'So, sir, you think my sermon's antediluvian?' said the bishop, with a twinkle of the eye. He never got mad. He was the best old man that way that ever happened. "'Yes, sir,' replied Bob, by rote. "'Thank you,' said the bishop, and rubbed his nose. Then he eyed Bob curiously. "'Maybe you're right,' he said. That made Bob feel awful. But he couldn't retract. The truth as he saw it. He felt as if he were chained to the wheel of fate. The truth as he saw it, though the heavens fell. Of course, that's only my poor insignificant opinion, he murmured miserably. Every man's opinion is entitled to respect, said the bishop. Yes, sir, replied Bob, more miserably still. The bishop continued to study him. You interest me, Mr. Bennett. Do I? said Bob. I'm rather interesting to myself just now. You evidently agree with the author of The Outside of the Pot? That's it, weakly. Well, cheer up, said the bishop, and walked away. Later in the day the judge might have been heard to say to the bishop that that young Bennett cub is a good-for-nothing jackanapes, from which it might be inferred Bob had somehow managed to rub the judge's ermine the wrong way. Ha-ha! laughed the bishop. Did someone ask him what he thought of judges? But the judge did not laugh. His frown was awful. Or was it about the recall? or the relation of judges and corporations. The judge looked stern as Jove. Ass, he muttered. Maybe he's a progressive, returned the bishop. 
The world seems to be changing. Ought we to change with it, I wonder? I don't, snapped the judge. If the world today is producing such fatuous blockheads, give me the world as it was. The trouble is, said the bishop, again rubbing his nose, can we get it back? Hasn't it left us behind, and are we ever going to catch up? Fudge, said the judge. He and the bishop were such old friends, he could take that liberty. Another of the sterner sex, one of Mrs. Ralston's guests, looked as if he too could have said, Fudge. His lips fairly curled when he regarded Bob. He specialized as a vivisectionist, and he was a great authority. Now Bob loved the underdog, and was naturally kind and sympathetic. He had been blessed, or cursed, with a very tender heart for such a compact, well-put-up, six-foot or so compound of hard-headed masculinity. Miss Dolly, imp of mischief, again rather forced the talk. It must be wonderful to cut things up and juggle with hind legs and kidneys and brains and mix them all up with different animals until a poor little cat didn't know if it had a dog's brain or its own. And was it true that sometimes the dogs meowed, and when a cat started to purr did it wag its tail instead? This was all right for Miss Dolly, but when the conversation expanded and Bob was appealed to, it was different. "'Wouldn't you just love to mix up the different parts?' asked Miss Dolly, and put a rabbit's leg on a pussy just to watch its expression of surprise when it started to run and found itself only able to jump, or half-jump? That got honest Bob, who couldn't have carved up a poor dumb beast to save his life, fairly involved, and before he had staggered from that conversational morass, he had offended authority about two dozen times. Indeed, authority openly turned its back on him. Authority found Bob impossible. These are fair samplings of a few of his experiences. And all the while he had an uneasy presentiment that Mrs. Dan and Mrs. Clarence were waiting to get him and have their innings. Now, Mrs. Dan would bestow upon him a too-sweet smile between games of tennis. Then Mrs. Clarence would drift casually in his direction, but something would happen that would prevent a heart-to-heart -heart duologue, and she would as casually drift away again. These hit-and-miss tactics, however, gradually got on Bob's nerves, and in consequence he who was usually a star and a crackerjack at the game played abominable tennis that afternoon, thus enhancing his unpopularity with diverse partners who simply couldn't understand why he had fallen off so. Indeed, about every one he came in contact with was profoundly dissatisfied or disgusted with Bob. Miss Gerald, who usually played with him, now firmly but unostentatiously avoided him, and though Bob couldn't blame her, of course, still the fact did not tend to mitigate his melancholy. How different in the past! That glorious never-to-be-forgotten past! Then he had inwardly reveled and rejoiced in her lithe movements, for with all her stateliness and proud carriage she was like a young panther for grace. Now as luckless Bob played with someone else, a tantalizing college ditty floated through his brain. I wonder who's kissing her now. Of course no one was. She wasn't that kind. Though someone some day would. It was in the natural order of things bound to occur and Bob, in fancy, saw those disdainful red lips, with someone hovering over, as he swung at a white ball and sent it, well, not where he should have. "'You are playing very badly, partner,' a reproving voice reminded him. Bob muttered something. Confound that frivolous, haunting song! He would dismiss the dire and absurd possibility. 
Someone else was with her, though, and that was sufficiently poignant. There were several of the fellows tremendously smitten in that quarter. Fine, husky, athletic chaps, too. Some of them quite expert at wooing, no doubt. For devotees of house-parties become educated and acquire finesse. They don't have to tell the truth all the time, but on the contrary are privileged to prevaricate in the most artistic manner. They can gaze into beautiful eyes and swear they have never before, and so on. They can perform prodigies of prevarication and get away with them. Bob played now even worse than before. The sun got low at last, however, and wearily he retired to his room, to change his garments for dinner. Incidentally, he surveyed himself in the mirror with haunting earnestness of gaze. Had he grown perceptibly older? He thought he could detect a few lines of care on his erstwhile unsullied brow, and with a sigh he turned away to array himself in the customary black or glad rags, which seemed now, however, but the habiliments of woe. Then he descended to receive a new shock. He found out that Mrs. Ralston had assigned Mrs. Dan to him, to take in to dinner. Drearily, Bob wondered if it were mere chance that he had drawn Mrs. Dan for a dinner prize, or if Mrs. Dan herself had somehow brought about that to her desired consummation. As he gave Mrs. Dan his arm, he saw Mrs. Clarence exchange glances with the Commodore's good lady. Mrs. Ralston went in with the monocle man. End of chapter 5